Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger Show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. And welcome back to the Starting Over Stronger Show. I am glad to have you back again this week to hear more of my memoir called Starting Over Stronger, Finding a Pathway Out of Codependency to Create a New Life of Peace. If you're just tuning in today for the first time, you're going to want to go back because we are in the middle of reading a book. This is basically my personal audiobook to you sharing my memoir that was recently published. And there is information in the show notes about where to get yourself a copy of this book. And we are on part four today, which is going to be finishing chapter three and starting chapter four. And I look forward to connecting with you again. Uh, I've said it a million times and I'm going to keep saying it because I never know, you know, who's tuning in for the first time. But but you can join me on Facebook at Starting Over Stronger or Starting Over Stronger After Divorce. One is a page that I share information and encouragement on. The other is a group that I have put together for people like you to get together and share your stories and help each other out. And I would love for you to come to either or both and introduce yourself in the group and just let us know how you found Starting Over Stronger and what difference it has made in your life. That would mean so much to me and it would help not only you, but also others who might be a little too timid to even try that. So I want you to use your bravery and courage and just really reach out and and uh, connect somehow, some way, either there or get the help you need in your community or go to startingoverstronger.com and find out about coaching and support groups. Uh, there's just so many places to get help now that there didn't used to be. And I don't want you to go through this alone. So thank you again for joining us. And we're going to pick up on page 47 at the section in chapter three called Nightmare on 63rd Street. The last time my father hit me, I was 15. I had returned home from school. I always came in through the basement from the garage, and when I ascended the stairs into the living room, I heard them. The sound of him yelling, I knew that deep, unthrottled anger. The flushed red of his face and wild Mustang look in his eyes before I even saw him. Her cries were equally familiar. The childlike terror, like a youngster encountering her first monster in the woods. Bob, no, stop! Except this was no unfamiliar monster. This was the man who had vowed to love, honor, and cherish her, whom I had never seen do any of the above. This time, he had cornered her. From behind the kitchen table, he could no longer reach her. I could clearly see her red, tear-streaked face was much darker on her right cheek. He always did prefer the backhand slap. She had already lost her glasses across the room on the floor. He kept yelling, but the words were of no concern to me. Not today. Today was going to be different. I'm not sure what changed. But today was not going to be like all the other times that came before. 
This time, I was not going to sit back and watch in fear. I was not going to go find a sibling and try to enlist their help. I was not going to run into my room and turn the music up loud to drown it out. I was also not going to jump back in my car and drive as fast as I could to Stan's house. Today, I was taking matters into my own hands. I was done. As soon as he saw me enter the kitchen, he began to yell at me, too, as if my presence was yet again some kind of intrusion into his life. Get out of here. This is between your mother and me. I looked him straight in the eye and I said, no, it's not. When I have to see it and hear it, it involves me, too. And I am done with this way you think you can treat us. You need to get out of here and get yourself under control. If the gates of hell opening could be portrayed in the eyes of a man, that was exactly what I saw before me. Still, I felt no fear. It was pure adrenaline. He turned toward me. Even as he did, I may have dissociated in that split second, wanting so much to hear my mom take a stand to protect me just this once, like she should have so many times before, like I was doing for her right now. She did not. She sobbed as quietly as she could in her safe corner of the room, letting her monster become mine. He came toward me with evil, unbridled anger in his eyes. That look had terrified me my entire life. Why was it different this time? I don't know, but it was. I stood my ground. Today, even though neither of them had changed, I had. If I could go back to any one moment in my entire life to relive it, I might choose this moment. That may sound crazy. I would not go back to my wedding day or the birth of one of my children. I would go back here to this house on 63rd Street at age 16 and live this horrid moment all over again, just for the opportunity to understand it better, to get inside my own mind and what led me in this moment. What exactly had changed that made me respond so differently this time? I have gone over and over this defining moment more times than I care to count with counselors and therapists. It has come to be known as the pivotal day when, for the first time, I stood up for myself and fought back. This was the first time in my life that I said, no more. He charged across the room, doing his best big ugly bully to put me in my place. He backed me up until I had nowhere to go except down on the couch along the back window of the living room. He backed me all the way down to sitting on the couch. He towered over me, berating me with his venomous words that thankfully time has erased. What time hasn't erased is the memory of the painful slap across my face, the fear, the humiliation, the powerlessness, and then, from somewhere deep inside, suddenly, I found my strength. Strength or stupidity. At that moment, I wasn't sure. I had not taken the time to think this through. This was pure, unadulterated fight or flight. And today, for the first time in my life, I was going to fight. Just as he recoiled, ready to strike again, I cocked my right leg back drew my knee up to my chest and unleashed every bit of my adrenaline-rushed power to land my foot straight onto the zipper of his old Levi's jeans. 
I held nothing back. He stumbled backward. Now was the moment of truth. Would he come at me again, even angrier? Would I find the courage to strike again if he did? Thank God I would never know. Miracle of all miracles, I got the attention of my mean, hard-headed father. Maybe for the first time ever. Someone he had bullied and attacked did not cower and take it. I found my will to be treated well. I know I hurt him. He looked at me, stunned, still angry, but the anger draining from his face, replaced by disbelief, confusion, and I believe shame. With that, he quietly retreated to his bedroom down the hall. I sat there, stunned myself. But the anger and shock that had propelled me through this fateful encounter drained away. And as I sat there a few moments longer, what was left in its place was some of the most intense pride in myself I had ever felt. I began to cry, not tears of pain, fear, or sorrow. These were tears of relief, of humble pride. To be humble proud is to be proud of one's actions while keeping a spirit of humility, knowing we know no victories without the love and support of others, especially God. I was incredibly humble proud about what happened, the bravery and courage I had found within and the results received. He never laid a hand on me again, ever, nor on my mother to my knowledge. What transpired within me to bring me to that no more place? I may never know, and that is okay. Sometimes we go with what we do know. I do know that I discovered the real me that day, a woman I would spend the next 30 or so years trying to find again. So thank God for this day, which anchored me to my true self and from which I would draw courage repeatedly through the battles of my life. A woman I would create all on my own because I had no role model to credit was showing me the way. After my dad walked away on that no more day and I retreated to my downstairs bedroom, I have no idea what transpired with my mom. Her view from the kitchen, even if still cowered behind the table, would have allowed her to see what had just happened between my dad and me. She would have seen me fight back. She would have seen him retreat. What did she say? Did she do anything to address what had transpired? As an adult, I have many times wondered, and as a mother myself, I know what I would have done, what I did do when faced with similar scenarios later in life. I would have stood up to a hostile husband. I would have told him to calm down and stop yelling. I would have gone to them privately after to make certain they knew how sorry I was for what they had to endure. What I would not have done is what my mother did. Nothing. She is no longer a part of the memory after I intervened. So I know she quietly shrunk back in some way. Whatever she did do, she did not intervene or make any repair attempt, at least not with me. She did not try to protect me in the moment, and worse still, she never came to me and spoke to me about it to repair what had happened. This, to me, is perhaps the saddest part of this whole story. I grew up not only being abused by my dad and watching my dad abuse my mom, but I never even had the benefit of a mother trying to protect me 
or make amends for any of it. I now know she was fully enmeshed in the victim mentality, and she undoubtedly believed she had a learned helplessness that convinced her that she had no ability to protect me, or even herself. Otherwise, Mother Bear instinct would have kicked in at some point. Knowing that now did not help me then. Instead, I would have to learn it the hard way over the many years and the many decision points that would lead me in the same direction she had gone. Learning to say no more. Some people did all their growing up in one childhood home. My youth was spread out across a total of five homes from birth through high school graduation. Yet in every way that matters, I grew up in that house on 63rd Street. It was there that I lived when I lost my virginity. It was there that I experienced my first tragic death. One of my good friends from my sophomore class was killed on homecoming night in a terrible car accident. It was there that I learned to drive a car and act synonymous with maturity and freedom. It was there that I got my first job at McDonald's. It was there that I began to explore the world of relationships. It was there that I started to learn about God and his desire to have a relationship with me. It was there that I stood up for myself for the first time, uttering my first no more to abuse, spurred on by some invisible force inside me. Unfortunately, it would not be the last. Chapter 4, Starting Out, Ages 17 to 28 When I graduated from high school in 1991, I had no idea how true one of my graduation cards was. Congrats on your high school graduation. You've now completed the easiest part of your life. We moved a half mile off 63rd Street to a house on Willow, right behind the school, for my last couple years of high school. After my graduation, I'd had all I could take of my dad's toxic ways. He hadn't hit me again after that day when I was 15, but that didn't mean he had changed, nor did our relationship improve in any other way. He continued to think he could treat anyone any way he wished, say he was sorry, and we were supposed to forget all about the hurt and move on like it didn't happen. This pattern of my dad's was one I would deal with, with Stan and others in my life are why I have become discriminating of the words, I'm sorry. I say them myself when needed, and I mean them when I do. I despise them being used in this hollow way of trying to avoid personal responsibility, and with the expectation that those two words seem to demand that we ignore the bad behavior that led us here. How hard is it to just acknowledge you hurt someone and make some attempt at amends rather than throwing out two words expecting them to erase everything? After the no more incident, my father came downstairs visibly different. Was he remorseful? He asked me to sit on the couch because he wanted to talk to me. He forced me to sit there for an uncomfortably long time as he offered up his excuses or maybe heartfelt sorrow in his attempt to apologize for what I had seen and what he had done to me. I wonder now if my mother had gotten the same apology and if she felt the same way I did about it. This was the first experience with some awareness 
albeit not full understanding, of the reconciliation stage of the abuse cycle. The cycle of abuse describes four phases that occur in a predictable pattern over time with abuse of individuals. The tension building phase can last from hours or days to months, depending on the abuser and the relationship. While tension escalates, communication breaks down, victims become more and more fearful and feel the need to placate the abuser, also called peacekeeping or walking on eggshells. At some point, the tension intensifies into an incident of verbal, emotional, psychological, financial, or physical abuse marked by anger, arguing, blaming, threats, control, intimidation, and or violence. After the incident, the abuser attempts reconciliation, apologizes, offers excuses, blames the victim or something or someone else, never really taking responsibility for his or her actions. They also tend to deny or minimize the reality of the abuse, often accusing the victim of blowing things out of proportion or misconstruing things and expecting that it be over when they say it is over, not to be brought up again. Finally, there is calm. The incident is forgotten. Things feel normal again and with no active abuse taking place. This is also called the honeymoon phase. Though I knew nothing about the cycle of abuse at this point, except having lived it, I know in my heart that this apology of my father's was just words. It did nothing to change the reality of what had occurred, the reality of who my father was, or the reality that we did not have a healthy father-daughter relationship. I let him say his words. I let him grasp my shoulder in a way that he thought was comforting, but that was a trigger that would never go away. He would go away, but his words were meaningless. His large, rough hands were not comforting. They were always a reminder of his abuse or the lack of any kind of substantial and desperately desired connection. The fact that my mind can scarcely recall these hands ever holding or comforting me. That grasp of his during these moments of reconciliation would linger in the cellular memory of my left shoulder for the rest of my life, clenching up every time to remind me when I feel a heightened threat to my security. Nothing changed that day because of his words or his touch, but something did change that day, me. He never brought me the love and comfort a father should, only pain, fear, and criticism mixed with the occasional attempts to be loving and fun, which always fell flat, coupled with a complete lack of acknowledgement and remorse for his abuse. He is the reason that to this day I struggle with perfectionism, like the teenager bringing home a grade card with all A's and one B. The little voice in my head was a miniature replica of his voice, constantly reminding me I was not good enough. You got all these other A's, why this one B? Never enough. Never a kind word to encourage me without a backhanded insult. Why would anyone want to go on subjecting themselves to this kind of treatment a single day longer than they had to? I didn't. As soon as I graduated in May and hit age 18 in September, I was gone. 
I did not care where I was going. I was not moving toward anything. I was simply and instinctually moving away from pain. Or so I thought. She's a little runaway. My life was a massive living example of the human instinct to move away from pain. You do not have to think about whether you want to take your hand off a hot burner. You just do it. I did not have to think about whether I wanted out of my father's house. I had known it from an early age. I would have gone anywhere with anyone to not be there. The opportunity that presented was to move in with Stan. At 18 and 20, we were both tired of living under parents' rules and restrictions and, for me at least, abuse. We were ready for anything other than that. Moving in together was another example of my tendency to think that the next step was going to fix the broken places. I had enrolled in community college and found a full-time job to make that possible. My parents could not afford to fund college for us and likely did not even consider doing so given that I was a first-generation college student. Stan was also working full-time as he continued to pursue his information technology degree at DeVry Institute, a local college. Just as important as the decision to move out was my decision to go to college. Unaware at the time of the gravity of it, I was a first-generation college student. To this day, I'm still the only one in my family who has completed a university degree. With the help of the Pell Grant I received due to my parents' finances, I took out loans to complete my education on my own dime. Another humble, proud moment. I do not honestly know what drove me to seek a degree, except the general notion of improving my life. It was not because the school pushed kids toward college and university like they do now. At one point, schools were more supportive in helping students choose whether college, career, or entrepreneurship was the best fit for them. It was not because my family expected it. No one in my family had ever completed, and most had never even attempted college. It may have had something to do with the fact that Stan was going. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up, so it would have been easy to do nothing. I'm glad I didn't go that route. The decision to complete a two-year degree at that time, would prove to be one of the most pivotal decisions I would make. For the few years it took me to complete my associate's degree at the community college, I only took general education courses that would be likely to transfer into any program if I continued. When I completed my undergrad, I still had no idea what I wanted to major in, so I stopped. In hindsight, I know why I got that degree back in 1994, and I will explain later why that was a crucial decision. Working nine to five. Around the time I finished my associate's degree, I landed my first full-time big girl job with benefits at a local telemarketing company. My job was to learn and practice to perfection scripts for calling medical, dental, and vision offices, marketing pharmaceutical products to the physicians. By the time I left, before I had my first child, I was making a great income for a young 20-something in the mid-90s. At 21, I had little maturity, but I also had more of my father's style of relating to people than I cared to realize. In the way of treating others with patience and grace and requiring others to treat me well, too, I had a lot to learn. 
Lucky for me, the company wanted to keep me. So whether I was doing well or not well in any given position, they continued to promote me. They must have seen something in me that I could not yet see in myself. Luckily, these new positions always meant an increase in responsibility and pay. My third and final promotion was to executive assistant. This job would bring much in the way of professional experience and was also another humble, proud moment as I now served the president and C-level executives rather than on the phone telemarketing. It would also usher in my first experience with sexual harassment. Back then, we did not call it that. No Me Too campaign existed to rally all women together to confront this evil. We called it what you deal with as a woman in the workplace, period. I called it men are creeps. I left this job at eight months pregnant rather than taking a maternity leave to stay at home with my daughter. I am glad I did, but part of me will always wish I had stayed at this job and continued my career. I made two especially important friendships during my time at this job, Susan and Jill, both of whom would play a key role in this early part of my life and again later after we would reconnect when we really needed one another years later. Where do I even start in trying to capture my relationship with Jill over the years? My life was forever better because I connected with this amazing woman who is my twin in so many ways. When she and I first met at work, we were not fast friends, but we were friends and had some fun together. On the surface, we didn't have a ton in common. We worked in different parts of the building. She had a young daughter. I didn't have kids yet. Her mom and dad were divorced. Mine were not. She was dating. I was single for a time, then engaged and married. We had fun whenever we did get together, which was more during the time she and I were both single for a while. Friday night happy hours at Chi-Chi's, a couple weekend trips, a canoe trip, one fateful introduction to one friend's brother, and lots of giggling about cute guys in other departments. And there was chatting in her office when we should be working, whenever we could get away with it. Over the years, there were weddings and more kids for both of us, with life sending us drifting in two different directions for several years. I don't even recall how much we talked about anything serious when we worked together, but we definitely connected on a kindred level. It was Jill who oversaw making my 21st birthday memorable, and that she did. After way too many free hot damn shots bought for me, it was Jill's little Ford Ranger truck that I was carried out to by the Cactus Moon bouncers. It was her passenger side window that I hung halfway out, throwing up or wanting to, the entire 15-minute ride back to her mom's place where Jill lived in Raytown. It was her who caught me, or tried to, as she opened that passenger side door and I melted out onto the driveway unable to operate my own body. It was Jill who did her best to coax me off the ground and into the townhouse. She was trying not to worry her mom, but that became impossible through our bursts of laughter as my drunken brain said the most ridiculous thing we will never forget as my suggestion for how to get me into the house. Just pull me by my hair. Jill let herself be subjected to her nurse mom's scolding for letting me get that drunk. And Jill's mom might have saved my life that night by making me drink the nastiest sugar-thickened orange juice ever, I guess to boost my blood sugar. Spoiler alert, I survived. Boy, has this story given us some laughs over the years. Despite not yet being what either one of us would have called best friends, 
In some ways, Jill and I grew up together for a little while back then. We created what would be a solid foundation for our future friendship that would be a lifeline for both of us during the hardest seasons of our lives. Back then, we were both learning about the working world in the same place. We both spent some time enjoying the single life. We both navigated some difficult and some great dating years dealing with some of the same things. Both Susan and Jill would be there for me as life transitions came and went. Interestingly, in contrasting ways that will come to light as my story continues to unfold. From the time we both married in the late 90s, the drift began. It was never intentional. Life just happened. Before we knew it, we had missed the births and much of the growing up of each other's children and way too much of each other's early adulthood focused there. We were both always trying to do better and be better for our kids, our husbands, our moms, our siblings, always trying to be what everyone else needed and never feeling like it was enough until one day after about an eight-year silence, we reconnected. Over those eight years, much had transpired in our lives without each other. Like my other friendships throughout my life, there were starts and stops. Staley in elementary school, Angie in middle school, and Nina in high school. Staley and I had no falling out. We moved apart and developed other friendships in the distance from one another, such as life. Angie and I had no falling out either. We had the same distance thing when happened when my family moved yet again. With Nina, a falling out was inevitable. After seven years of being inseparable with church and school activities, once we hit our 20s, life began to feel different. She had her life and I had mine, and they were no longer intersecting well. On top of that, I was losing patience with the consistent feeling that I was giving more than I was getting in the friendship. One day, it became intolerable. More mature in some ways and more willing to stand up for what worked and did not work for me, I began to assert my own needs in the friendship. Also, by this time, I had met Susan and Jill at work, and Nina seemed to lose interest in our friendship. We were all busy with full-time jobs, college, and whatever our lives held at that moment, but Susan and Jill and I made time for each other, or just had more in common, working together and enjoying going out dancing. I didn't feel like I had to do all the work in those friendships. That was not true with Nina. Despite loving so much about my friendship with Nina, I hit a wall with her. It was the night of the 21st birthday party that Jill had planned for me, and I was so excited to go to a bar with friends and celebrate. Instead of joining me or even offering a birthday gift, Nina offered up yet another bad excuse at the last minute for why she would not be there. This time for the last time. She chose something, or more likely someone, over me on my big day. I'm not proud of the way I, in which I set a boundary with her that day, but I am glad I was learning boundaries. Done allowing myself to be treated like an option, at least in this one friendship. I am grateful that I was able to tap into the empowerment to speak up about what I deserved. This was the last time I spoke with Nina. A brief conversation happened many years later because I attempted to reach out to her, despite her never trying. All good boundary setters regress from time to time. I quickly realized nothing had changed. She was still so self-consumed that she could not see where she had erred in the friendship. 
and for that reason alone, being friends with her was not going to work for me. I wished her well and moved on. Both at 21 and again in my early 30s with the failed attempt to reconnect. I was done giving more than I was getting in my relationships. Okay, I was far from done, but I was at least attempting to see it and end it where I could, a step in the right direction. All friendships are important for different reasons and differing seasons. Some friendships hold that core space we women like to call best friends. And yet, the older I get, the less willing I am to brand my friendships with the pressure of the word best. I'm always learning more about friendships, and sometimes the things we believe about them require acceptance for what does and does not align as time goes on. We align with who we align with for different reasons in different seasons. Many good friends can be the best in different ways. Staley was the best in elementary school, always being there for me when literally no one else was. Angie was the best in middle school as I adjusted to life in a different part of town and entered into adolescence. Nina was the best in high school for trying to enjoy life with overbearing fathers and two passive moms. Susan was the best as a young adult, modeling how to be laid back and enjoy the passing seasons as we become adults. Jill was the best thing for me as we both made major life transitions in our mid-40s. Indeed, they are all the best they know to be at any given time and accept me for the same. Friends come into our lives when they are destined, some for a reason, some for a season. Only a very precious few have a single forever friend. I am thankful that despite the many seasons of transition my life seems destined to continuously offer up to me, I stay in touch with many of the wonderful women I have had the pleasure of calling friend across my life. I am discovering that connections and reconnections are always flowing in my life, and I choose acceptance of this flow. And I am grateful for the love, acceptance, and grace of so many amazing women. Living on a Prayer Back in the mid-90s, major shifts in my life included moving out, trying to understand and fix my relationship with Stan, the central theme for most of my life, watching my father move several states away, which left my mom in a puddle of dysfunctional codependent tears, moving back home to save for the wedding I thought I always wanted, and trying to befriend my mom and encourage her to let her bad marriage die so she could have a chance at a fulfilling life. Ironic when I summarize it this way. The whole time I was coaching my mother, clearly seeing the issues she faced and exactly what she needed to do to resolve them, I was completely blind to the reality of my relationship, following in her footsteps. After playing house in a two-bedroom apartment in Raytown for a couple of years and realizing nothing was changing for the better, I finally took the reins and attempted to end the relationship for the last time. On the heels of yet another knockdown drag out verbal assault, I moved out. I put on my big girl pants, secured a lease, and moved to an apartment of my own. It was weird to live alone, but I did not need Stan. I needed to convince myself of that. Like Nina, I did not want to be in a relationship with someone who cared more about themselves than me. I could take care of myself. I could live a life not dominated by constant drama. I put my foot down for the first time with Stan, 
I stood up for myself and made a decision for my own well-being. Unlike the Nina decision, this one did not last. Short on the conviction and clarity I would need to stand by the decision long enough to allow it to truly change my life. One of the concepts I now understand fully and share with my coaching clients is that the only way to end patterns in bad relationships is to stop playing the same part. We can look at what they do to us all day long the rest of our lives, but nothing will change until we look at what we do, what we accept. Going back into this relationship with Stan based on his apologies, promises of change, or worse still, the pure adrenaline and emotion of being love-bombed again, is a surefire recipe for repeating patterns of pain. Doing the same thing over and over again? Expecting different results is the definition of insanity. Love bombing, by the way, involves bombarding a romantic partner with attention and affection, excessive compliments and gifts that could seem like an eager person, just newly infatuated or reinfatuated with the person they love. But it's not that simple. Love bombing is a manipulative tactic meant to cause the target to lose sense of the logic and lose themselves in emotion. And it is commonly associated with persons with narcissistic tendencies. It can look like love at first sight, but you have to learn how to tell the two apart. Don't get me wrong, reconciliations are possible, but they will only have a chance at long-term success if one or both parties have taken the time to address and have repaired the key issues at the center of the primary conflicts. If the things that became so intolerable that one or both opted to end the relationship and those issues are still not resolved or not addressed at all, failure is inevitable. Those who refuse to learn from the past are destined to repeat it. I was too easily hoovered back in at age 21. Hoovering is another manipulative technique used by narcissistic people to get their target to override their logic with emotion so they can gain or regain power and control. And before I go any further, let me be clear. Narcissists don't get diagnosed. I use the terms narcissist, narcissistic people, and people with narcissistic tendencies interchangeably to mean anyone who is manipulative, controlling, and verbally aggressive when they don't get their way. This can be narcissist or borderline. We don't need someone to be diagnosed or labeled. We just need to understand through that lens. Covert psychological abuse is rampant in our world today. And it is and always will be highly unreported and undiagnosed because of the very nature of the personality disorder. By and large, those who should be diagnosed will not subject themselves to the process of therapy and testing, which would be required to obtain such a diagnosis. If they do, they will reason away the results as inconclusive or related to something else entirely, denying the diagnosis or preventing it altogether. And what's the point? No known cure exists, and few will ever have the self-awareness and personal responsibility to own how they have hurt others and to make amends for the past and measurable changes for the future. 
As I tell my story, I will continue to relate to you the terms associated with covert psychological abuse. You may notice them in someone in your own life, and they may be covert or overt in your experience. Covert narcissists are the ones who everyone thinks of as a great guy or gal, except the people they abuse inside the four walls of their own home, while overt are the ones we all know have issues and we wonder why someone stays with them. It's all the same. It presents differently for a variety of reasons. Back to the big breakup that I finally initiated at age 21. I was easily hoovered back in because my conviction to leave was based on the fact that we were still playing house and arguing without resolution seven years later. No talk of marriage. I was quickly lured back in with a few flower deliveries, a poem or two, and a whirlwind trip to St. Louis, Missouri, because I was met with a totally unexpected marriage proposal. When you are a people pleaser, you don't really know who you are outside of a relationship. So when a total stranger is holding a camera and you're asked the question you'd been waiting to be asked for years, you say yes. There is no other answer. I will never forget that cagey feeling as he dropped to one knee. Not sure if I even wanted this now. Yes, I had been enjoying the love bombing for the last few weeks, but I had also been enjoying my independence and drama-free life for about six months. Now, we are being photographed with dozens of onlookers at the base of the St. Louis Arch, everyone expecting a scene like every love story they've ever watched, where they cheer and believe in the power of love for a moment. Wasn't this what I wanted? The reason I had left? Here it was. The moment I had been waiting for so long, yet now wasn't sure I wanted. Saying anything but yes was never an option that entered my mind. Life is funny like that. We can know something in our hearts, yet our brains will lie to us so well that we won't even know we know it. Before the question was popped, I was making my way on my own. I did not need anyone. I was 20 years old with a lot to prove to myself, to him, to my parents, and to anyone who did not think I had what it took to make it on my own. I did, and I was. During those six months, I absolutely loved having my own space. It was quiet. It was all mine. I am not highly introverted, but I am not too extroverted either. I have always been able to find joy in doing things all by myself. I learned that from my youth of going it alone emotionally. I also felt comfortable in a crowd for a certain amount of time anyway. Back at my solo apartment, I can still see the cream-colored cushions of the incredibly uncomfortable little couch with the ever-so-slight baby blue and baby pink random threads streaked throughout. I can feel the texture of that fabric. Perhaps because I did the most predictable thing every sheltered girl does in her life. I ended up on that ugly couch one night with a total bad boy. A good old country boy. Tall, rugged, rough around the edges. I think I just loved how he was hardworking, but living in the moment. What attracted me the most to him was how much I wanted to be able to relax and enjoy life like he did 
My nervous anxiety never seemed to let me. I take that back. What I like about him the most was that he looked and acted nothing like Stan. So I threw caution to the wind and did that one thing that I had never done before, what it seemed like everybody else was doing, certainly what I believe Stan had done so many times during our breakups. I hooked up. One night, one guy, one time. He was not a total stranger. He was related to a good friend of mine, and I was friends with him before and after the encounter. But I knew it was that, an encounter, no potential there. It all began innocently enough on that faded couch with the longest ever makeout session. He was a gentleman willing to let me take the lead while I was trying to get my nerve up to do anything besides kiss. We eventually moved from the couch to the one bedroom of my little oasis of independence. I'm sure it was good, but mostly it was different. Having only ever been with one person, different had its pros and cons. It felt all wrong in some ways because of how different it was, but it was something I felt I needed to do to prove to myself I could do something different than I'd always done. I could live alone. I could be with someone else. I could make my own damn decisions, good or bad. Do it, own it, let it be. I did that, right up to and including when I made the decision to let the love bomb poems and flowers from Stan do what they were designed to do. Convince me to go right back to the exact situation I had told myself I was done with, in spite of all the evidence that it was not going to change. We see what we want to see sometimes. The marriage proposal came in January of 1995, the wedding July of that same year. We would both swallow our pride and move back home to our parents' houses to save money for the wedding. Neither of our parents had the money to finance a wedding. We would pay for it largely on our own. My father did give me a credit card, but quickly nitpicked each and every purchase, so I quickly found it was easier to take care of things myself. One of the decisions I made was the language for the invitations. Many were worded such that the parents were giving away the daughter to the groom. I did not care for those. They portray an image that did not exist, a family, a home where a girl belongs and feels a sense of belonging. My parents did not offer me that kind of love and bonding that would make such a wedding announcement appropriate. I read through so many different wordings for invitations, trying to figure out what fit. Much like every Father's Day or Mother's Day my entire life, I picked up one card after another, after another, and thought, nope. <laughs> not even close. I wish. Is there anything here that says enough to be nice without lying? Finally, I found it. It read, together with their parents, Stanley Wade and Barbara Joanne, request your presence as they are united in marriage, July 29, 1995, 6 o'clock p.m., Norfleet Baptist Church, Kansas City, Missouri. Together with their parents, he asked with disgust. Of course, my father did not care for this wording. He always did prefer the facade. We did finance this wedding together with our parents, but he wanted to pretend everything is fine. Like he's a good father giving away his beloved daughter to a man to whom he has given her. Ugh, it's all so patriarchal especially coming from someone who never took the time to have me, let alone earn the right to give me away. 
But he wanted to believe otherwise, and I was supposed to go along. His way or the highway. But I wasn't going to go along. I was going to be real. Whatever the case, however the invitations read, and regardless of the fact that my abuser would be walking me down the aisle, I was marrying the only man I had ever loved. Truthfully, though, did I even have any idea what love was? Did either of us? We had no idea how to build a healthy love relationship. Okay, well, we're a little over 45 minutes today, but that is going to conclude our reading for today. We're stopping on page 67 at the section called Total Eclipse of the Heart. And we'll see if we can get through the rest of chapter four next time. Thank you again for joining me. It's a pleasure to read to you. And I look forward to meeting you here again next week for more Starting Over Stronger, Finding a Pathway Out of Codependency to Create a New Life of Peace.